Welcome back to another episode of the Better Than I Found It podcast. This is Mike McGraw, the men's golf coach at Baylor and your host. My guest today on Better Than I Found It is longtime golf instructor Randy Smith from Royal Oaks Country Club in Dallas, Texas. Randy is not only a terrific instructor, he's taught major champions, U.S. amateur champions, U.S. junior champions, he's taught a ton of PGA Tour players, but he's not only a great instructor, he's just a terrific guy. Randy does as good a job of teaching the game and promoting the game as anybody I've ever been around. And he's a longtime uh, PGA of America club professional. Everything about Randy exudes excellence. He's a good friend of mine, and I think you'll really enjoy his insights today. Welcome to my guest today on Better Than I Found It, Randy Smith, golf instructor at Royal Oaks in Dallas. Randy, welcome. Good to be here, Coach. You know, I I, um, I haven't had all that many instructors on this podcast over the last year, um, but I really have been looking forward to this interview with you. Um, you and I kind of are cut out of the same mold as far as old school, kind of, I believe, anyway. Thanks. Thanks well, for you're welcome. And... <laughs> And uh, no, but I, I've always respected your work, what you do. And and I, so I've, I've been wanting to do this for quite a while. So thanks for for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you having me. Well, first of all, how's everything going on at Royal Oaks? I, I know that we've all been through a couple of years of a pandemic and it's changed all of our routines. I mean, are, have things pretty much been the same for you at Royal Oaks during the pandemic? Well, you know, pretty much now. But there was a period of time when this was really going, you know, a year ago, over a year ago, that uh, it was a total change. You know, it was the club basically was closed and then we opened up for walking golf. And, you know, you, you sit out in the parking lot at about six, eight feet from anybody that walked by and wave at them and everything. Shops closed, indoors closed. You know, that went for, you know, two or three weeks, four weeks. And then it gradually, you know, it gradually got better, but it was a, a big change. But, you know, I think the beauty of it is, is it was so good for the game of golf mm-hmm. because it was an activity that a lot of people could take part in and uh, not feel like they were in danger of uh, getting COVID. Well, so, I mean, that's essentially what we did. We, we were even six feet from our teammates, you know, we'd be practicing. You had to be far enough away from each other and, so I realize we've all gone through that, and I'm just glad. Were you giving golf lessons during that time, though? Were you able to do that? Uh, there for two to three weeks, there were no lessons either. Nothing. Oh wow! And uh, no, no range. <laughs> wow. So it, it was a little. It was a little odd there for a bit, and then we started back teaching. You, when, when we did, you know, it was it was very busy. For a guy like you, that I mean, you're one of the hardest working guys in this industry, in your profession, <clears throat> teaching profession. I know you are, and. Um, I, a lot of people don't understand it can be a backbreaking <laughs> endeavor. I mean, standing on a range tee all day long is not as easy as people would give it credit. So maybe you needed the break. You think you need a little break there for a while? Not that kind of break. <laughs> <clears throat> no, no, no. Because, you know, it, it was kind of sad because we had members and, you know, and friends that uh, had contracted this, the, the disease. And, you know, and then we saw a lot of people had family members that were, you know, affected by it. So, you know, having a break is always good because it, you know, freshens the brain a little bit, but that one right there, there's a lot of, there was a lot of tension with it. Well, we had the same thing here that summer of 2020, wondering if we were going to have a fall season. And fortunately 
the Big 12 Conference did play a fall season. We got to play three tournaments. But, uh-huh. well, enough about the pandemic. We're getting on the other side of that, and you're obviously very busy. You giving golf lessons pretty much every day? Uh, yes. Yes, That's pretty great. much. That's great. Well, before we get into, uh, I have a, a lot of questions I really want to ask you today, but uh, I want my viewers to know kind of, you know, you've been at Royal Oak since 1977, is that correct? Yes. And you were head golf professional director of golf, director of instruction. You've been just about everything other than a range boy, a cart boy, right? Well, I did a little of that myself. Yeah, I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did that when we first came as an assistant. I did everything. Okay. Well, that's a long time to be in any one place. My dad was a club professional for 40 years, and he was 25 years in the same place. So you don't see as much of that in the in the club professional business anymore, do you? No, you you really don't. And I was thinking about it, in fact, yesterday. Uh, it's almost almost 45 years that I've been here in, you know, as in some capacity. And the more I've thought about it, I just I think I, I'm just extremely grateful and I'm very lucky because it was a situation. There were other things that popped up that could have happened. But when you weighed everything, this place versus wherever else, they just didn't work out. Uh, this is a marvelous spot. Great membership. Um, a lot of fun. You know, it's, it's kind of cool to be on the lesson tee up there or giving lessons or whatever. You're working on third generation, mm-hmm. you know, it, and that, that blew me away. You know, you walk in a boardroom to a board meeting, you know, I did this, this was 12 years ago, 14 years ago. And I walked into a boardroom with all the board members of the club. And I looked across the table. And I just started dying laughing. <laughs> and the president was sitting beside me. And he said, what, what's the problem, Randy? What's going on here? He says, well, I'm sorry. And I, I look up and there's one of, my juniors that was in trouble every day that he was at this club. He was up to something every day. And I'm sitting in a boardroom directly across the table is this junior as a board member at Royal Oaks <laughs> Country Club. And I said, you know what? I've never felt so comfortable in my job in my life. <laughs> I got enough on that man over there. You know, I've got job security right here. You might be answering to him, but you had all the dirt. You know where the bodies are buried, right? Yeah, it was. He was calling me Mister Smith. That's funny. That's funny. Well, Randy, you've been like my dad was a club professional, so you've been in this a long, long time. You're one of the most decorated, so I I don't want to stroke your ego, but I am going to talk about some of your accolades within the PGA of America. Um, You were put into the PGA of America Hall of Fame in 2005, uh, 1996. PGA Professional of the Year, 2002 PGA Teacher of the Year. And I think you've had over almost 20 national awards in the PGA of America, and that's a record. So what do you attribute? I mean, I don't even know if you knew that statistic, but it's like that's a lot of national recognition within your profession. I mean, that that's pretty incredible to have done it this long and this well and be so well respected in your industry. Is that is that humbling to you? Uh, very, 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 you know, it goes back to a lot of it goes back to, you know, being lucky. You're at a place that allows you to do, you know, a lot of golf professionals are told, this is what you do. You know, 
you're the golf professional. You're going to come in. You've got shine shoes. You're going to stand behind the counter. You've got your name tag on. You're all polished up and yes, sir, and no, sir. And you do all your research about every single member so you can talk to them on a level that really makes them feel good, but you haven't done basically one thing to promote the game. You know, we've got maitre d's at restaurants that all we got to do is hire one of those. And the beauty of it was I, I loved the golf business. I loved being around golf. And then in 1980, uh, when I took over as head professional here, I thought I was going to be a merchandiser. You know, I'm going, oh boy, I did merchandising mm -hmm. seminars. Oh, I was something else. But in about 1982, three, all of a sudden it kind of hit me that we can merchandise all we want to. Uh, but not many people can change a slice into a hook on a member. And I've found that to be very valuable. Well, and, you know, as my dad always told me, he says, my, my main job is service to take care of the people and promote the game and help people get better at the game. Um, he, you know, by the time I was in high school and college, maybe, maybe he'd given just enough ladies group lessons. He was tired of that at that point, mm -hmm. but, but not, not, I don't mean that in a bad way. I just meant, you know, he was, had kind of moved on ready for retirement, but you, you seem like you still have the same kind of energy and passion and enthusiasm for teaching that you've ever had. I mean, you, it's there when I watch you. Well, you, the thing about teaching, if you don't have kind of some energy about it or look forward to it, more likely you're not going to be very good at it. So you wouldn't be teaching very much anyway. And so I think it kind of, it kind of feeds, you know, the ability to go out and teach. But I think something that's really kind of kept me going, uh, successes, you know, somebody hit the ball better, uh, kept me going. But one thing that really keeps it going is there's always some kid that keeps coming up. There's that one kid, maybe two or three kids that are in the pipeline that you want to, you want to stay around and, you know, to see them get better and better through high school, college, pro, so forth and so on. So you want to stay in that position to where you can have some sort of positive effect on those people. And uh, I think that's kept me going as much as anything. Um, if I, if I may draw a couple of parallels on that, um, Labron Harris, who was the first golf coach at Oklahoma State University and taught mm -hmm. my brother the game, and I've known, I knew Labron my whole life growing up, and, and Harvey Penick were both right. club professionals, teachers of the game, and college golf coaches. Now, you haven't been a college golf coach, but you've been a club professional and a teacher of the game. And it occurred to me that Labron and Harvey – they love teaching a 25 handicapper just as much as they love teaching a tour pro. And you've taught, you've taught a ton of tour pros. So that to me says the real essence of it is I love teaching the game and I love seeing people get better. Would you agree with that as far as a parallel between you and them? Well, that's a, that's a heck of a parallel between Mr. Harris and Mr. Pennick. I'll, I'll promise you that, but it, it's the same type deal. Yeah. Because it, you can go out if you if you hang your hat on on tour players, okay. That that's a lot of heat on you, mm -hmm. a lot of heat on you. And I don't know if you necessarily grow as much by working with just tour players. I think a lot of the stuff that you learn that can be applied in all all phases and at all levels of the game, you're going to learn working with the 25 handicapper. Because you know the funny thing about working with 25 handicapper. 
they may not understand the relationship with the face and the golf ball. You do. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're trying to get that point across what will influence the ball to do something different than their problem. And that can't, I mean, that's going to help you all the way down the line. The more you look at that type of situations, because 25 handicapper is going to throw you a little variety out there. He is. You know? That's great. Well, that's, that's good to say. I, I, you know, I, um, I taught a lot of junior golf lessons to beginners when I was a young high school golf coach. And I remember thinking I enjoyed that a lot. I loved coaching my high school team. I've loved coaching college golf, but I always enjoyed seeing the smile on a person's face when they, when they clicked and they finally got it. And I think you've done that a bunch. That's, that's the whole key coach right there is when something clicks, especially with, with, you know, working with kids, if, if something clicks, they're going to keep doing it, you know, and, and I use the analogy a lot, you know, working with some kid trying to get them to do something. Okay. in the golf swing or hitting the ball or whatever. I said, look, do you remember when you had your training wheels on your bicycle? Every single one of them. Well, it's getting a little, kind of, a little iffy yeah. now, <laughs> but back in the, you know, said, yeah, I, I remember that. I says, well, was that fun? And they looked at me, not really. I said, well, let me run it by you. Is it something like this? That you had the training wheels on your bicycle when you were little, and your best friend drove up without training wheels and wanted to ride around the block, and you got training wheels on. Did that accelerate your learning curve just a little bit? Mm, mm. And did you catch yourself over beside a fence or the house or whatever, trying to get balance? where nobody could see you crash and you really started working on how to do that without training wheels and you kept doing it and kept falling down. Then all of a sudden the pedal got in the right spot to where when you push forward a little bit with the, the pedal, the ball, the, oh, and you had balance for only a few feet and you got up and you did it again. And then all of a sudden you figured out that pedal goes down to boom, boom, boom. You have forward momentum, you have balance. What were you doing two hours later? You're out there riding around the block with your best friend with no training wheels, and it happens that quick. And I'll tell that story. And then all of a sudden, the kid goes, yeah, I can identify with that. And as soon as it does click, I said, is that your moment with your training wheels? And I said, it's good to see one of them say, yep, I think that might be it. I feel that. I, I sense that. Wow, that is really good. I've never heard that before. I love it. You've probably used that a lot in your career, I would imagine. A whole lot. Well, how do you, why do you think I did? Because that's exactly back in the day what happened with me. My best friend came over. He's riding his bike everywhere. All of a sudden, I got training wheels on. <laughs> you didn't want I, that? Ooh, that was embarrassing. So I, I worked real hard at uh, getting the train wheels off, getting up, getting something until I figured out how to ride that bicycle. Well, that's one thing you just said. So something clicked, but you worked real hard to try to make it work. That's one thing I think a lot of uh, students don't understand when they're taking golf lessons is you got to work in between golf lessons. And that part. You do? Yes, you do, Randy. You do. I know you don't know that. But this isn't like going skiing and you go down to Neiman Marcus and you buy all the clothes and everything and you get all your outfits and you go up there and you get on top of a mountaintop and they give you one lesson and you dressed up and you go over on the slope and you go ski right it's, it's not, not that the, way it's not the same way randy it, there's a oh. lot of dirty hard work involved here but you know that as well as i do but i love <laughs> that analogy i love it and i'm actually gonna figure out if i could use that if i can 
give you credit. You let me use yeah, that one. Absolutely. Well, listen, um, you mentioned tour players. So let, let me just go down a list of people you've worked with. You could add or subtract. These are, you may not work with them anymore, but you've worked with these people all at some point. Justin Leonard, Scotty Scheffler, Martin Flores, Harrison Frazier, Cody Gribble, Colt Nost, John Rollins, Brian Palmer, Martin Laird, Hunter Mahan, Gary Woodland, BJ Staten, Scott Verplank, Gonzalo Fernandez Castano, and Paul Haley. Is that a pretty accurate list of guys you worked with that have played professional golf? Yeah, those are the ones you, you know, I can talk about those. You know, there have been some times that you get some consulting, but you never really talk about those, you know, just a little consulting here and there, but those are fun. But those are the guys that, that I've worked with. And I think one of the coolest thing about it, there's a lot of those names in there came up as juniors through this country club, which I mean, you want to talk about luck. Now, how many times are you going to have, you know, us amateur champions coming at, you know, mid amateur champions that, you know, so forth and so on. Yeah. Just very, very fortunate to have those things happen. Well, yeah, I agree to have those people in your proximity, you know, to be able to work with, but also you guys have built a pretty successful junior golf program at Royal Oaks as well. So some of those kids were coming up through that junior program. Am I correct about that? Yes. Yes, they did. Uh, several of them, I, you know, the, probably the best examples would be, you know, Justin, uh, Harrison Frazier, um, Paul Haley, Scotty Scheffler, as far as the ones that started extremely young. Well, Harrison was, when he got here, he was just going into the eighth grade. And, you know, to see him come up and be involved in the junior golf programs, all our clinics, so forth and so on. Uh, it was a lot of fun. It was a, a lot of fun to watch that. And it, uh, it kind of developed a theory around these kids that, that are here. It's kind of what I call the lead horse theory. And I know you see it a little bit, you know, I, I would think in college coaching, you've got that one kid or that's all of a sudden became a little better than the others. He's, yeah, he's getting pretty good. Even though they won't talk about it, the rest of the kids that are down here underneath it that are around are looking up at him or her, you know, either way. Mm -hmm. They're watching, wow. So all of a sudden, they are pushed a little bit to get to the level that the lead horse is on. So that lead horse may not know what they're doing, but they're pulling the rest of those kids up to their level. And that right there, I think is, it's been very successful over here. I promise you, because we've had the opportunity to have some lead horses. Every golf team in college needs that, that lead horse that you're talking about. So other guys can draft off him and figure out how to be pulled along. And, I think when you get a guy like that on the team, he can he can transform a golf team for sure. And I know that the same thing can happen at a country club like that. Absolutely. It's the, it's, it becomes a measuring bar for everybody else. Well, let's yeah. talk about Justin Leonard for a second. He's probably your most decorated player that you've coached as far as uh, international golf and winning majors and that type of thing. How long had you how long did you actually work with Justin? <laughs> wow. He was seven. Okay. I think right in that area, seven, eight years old, right there is when, when it kind of, <clears throat> you, you didn't really work that much at that age, but you uh, pointed in certain directions at that age. 
And so it was, you know, he's going to turn 50 next June. That's this crazy. coming June. Now, I, I, that I just can't believe, honestly. There's no way. Hey, hey, newsflash, you led down on your deal. He is going to play the Champions Tour. Is he really? He's going to play all that garbage. And he's going to owe me $500 on a bet I made with him. Well, can you uh, get some video proof that he actually pays you on that on that bet? No, because as tight as he is, probably won't. <laughs> well, he probably will stiff me on that deal. But it, it's really, it's very gratifying. to. Yeah, I was pumped when, when I heard it. You know, I, I knew you were going to go play. Well, I'm going to play some. So that sum of picking some tournaments is going to probably turn into a pretty good schedule for him. Well, that's great. Well, his lifetime money is wins on tour major. I mean, he's going to get in some events for sure. But, you know, the nature of the business that you're in, and you were talking about it earlier about PGA Tour professionals hanging your hat on a PGA, you know, the relationships are pretty rare when they're as long as the one you've had with Justin. That's pretty rare. So what do you attribute the fact that you – if, if he does ask you to work with him, at, you know, as he turns 50 or regardless, you've had a long lasting relationship. What do you attribute that to? Well, I think the key words you were using there, coach, is relationship. You know, my God, I think he's fired me at least twice. Of course. Over that period of time, you know, very disappointed, blah, 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 got over it. Then go, here, he came back. You know, oh, I feel great. Well, I fired again. Oh, no. Then he's back. <laughs> You know, and finally, I think, you know, it's, but it's one of those deals where even during that period of time, you know, we're still buds. I'm pulling for him, whatever. And it's, it's a relationship. And when you have a relationship, you know, that, that can't end. It, it, it can't end. So, you know, I talked to Justin, oh gosh, I guess last week, a little bit, we text back and forth. I rib him on TV. He'll be sitting there doing some commentary, he'll say something really deep and, and heavy. And I have to text immediately. Oh, really? Such a big word for a longhorn. I mean, goodness, <laughs> right? something along those lines. And, and, and the funny thing is inside of 30 seconds, the response comes back and he's on set or something. So I have a good time with it. Right he's guy. actually, in my opinion, a very good commentator. I really like listening to him. I think he's good, honestly. You know why he's good? He does uh, – he's so anal. It's unbelievable. But he does as much research at a tournament. He is – I mean, he is getting information. Before he goes to the tournament, he's got it. He got locked in up here. Then he does his homework on his players, what's going on with the golf course, all those things. He does that homework before he goes. So – his preparation, I think, is what's making him a good broadcaster. Yeah, I actually like listening to him. I'm glad he's doing it. Uh, but I hope I hope he plays well enough on the Champions Tour that he doesn't have to do as much of it. Um, so you worked with him for a long, long time. Did you always work on the same sort of things with his golf swing? Were those tendencies, you know, did they repeat themselves? And what are his greatest strengths as a player? Justin... <clears throat> Okay, I don't know what you would necessarily call it, but he had the beauty of uh, the competitive gene. He had the beauty of being a competitor. He didn't accept his physical shortcomings very well. He didn't talk about them. He didn't whine about them. He did something about them. Oh, wow. And 
that's one of the things, a, a smaller player, and the best thing you can look at is Harrison Frazier was one of the longest hitting high school players I've ever seen. I mean, total power. He and played a lot of golf, him and Justin, head to head, blah, 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 and all that while they're here, here at the club and through school and through junior tournaments. Harrison would literally hit the ball in the neighborhood of, you know, say when they were 16 years old, uh, 15, 16. Harrison hit the ball 100 yards, 90 to 100 yards past Justin. Hmm. Yet when they turn their scorecards in, like in some little junior term or some, some deal, they turn their scorecard in, it'd be very similar with the number. And I always loved that because, you know, I would work with Justin so much on short game, wedge game. His wedge game was up to a, about an eight iron is basically what it is. You know, a lot of the par fours that he really couldn't reach, you still make him par or birdie on them. He developed a short game. He developed a putting stroke. He developed a way to stay competitive with the big hitters. And that was in his wedge game, short iron, and his brain putting himself in positions to play to the strong suit of the wedges and the short game. And when he did that, he became not only competitive, he became extremely proficient. You know, four-time All-American University of Texas, bye, bye, bye. He still couldn't hit it over 258. Now, that's, that's awful tough to, to do that stuff. But the beauty of it is he developed that game. Today's junior player, young players that are coming up, everything's about how far I can hit that golf ball. I'm the biggest fan of hitting it as far as I can. I'm, I love it. But when you take a kid that physically he can only hit it so far anyway, he's going to get longer and longer up to a certain point. But if they developed a short game, they developed the uh, aggressive wedge game when they're younger. And then all of a sudden they poof, that growth spurt hits that one day where the ball, all of a sudden it happens in one day, all of a sudden the ball goes 20 yards further that day. Oh, I feel it. What did they bring with them coach? They brought their short game. They bought, brought a proficient wedge game. Now they've got distance. All of a sudden they make a quantum leap. You've seen it, I know as a coach, that you've seen a 17, 18. You may have a 19-year-old kid that's sitting out there playing junior college golf, couldn't get in a major D1, and all of a sudden is one of the best players in the country because it hit him late. And he brought the short game with him, and all of a sudden he's a stud. Well, that's good of you to say about Justin because that's exactly what I thought he had to have to be the player that oh, yeah. he was. And – it's kind of sad. There's not as many of them around anymore, if you if you will. But I do love long hitting. I just think it's great to hit it as far as you can down the fairway. I love you it. Got, you got to, Coach. I mean, I used to be, you know, play within yourself, know what you can do. But let's be realistic. The way the golf courses are, and you're sitting up there, I'll give you a good example, Aaron Hills. Mm -hmm. They played, uh, what was the, it was an amateur. U.S. amateur, I think, a few years back. Yeah, and I had two or th I had two players in it that couldn't carry the bunkers that were sitting at two fifty eight to two seventy, and it was just a killer on that golf course because they were all these bunkers sitting in the corners at two seventy, two sixty eight, two fifty eight, and you couldn't get them. You got to play to the neck over here. You can't lay up to them because you got to hit a three wood. Mm -hmm. So you have to play to the right of them, maybe squeeze it up in there, and the guy like. 
you know, the example that was used on me because my player played with Peter Uline. Peter hits it just a little bit for distance. He was hitting three woods over those bunkers. Yeah, for sure. And once, what's on the other side of those bunkers? Downhill, and so all of a sudden your net gain could be up to 70, 80, 90 yards. And it doesn't matter if it rolls in the first cut. Heck, it doesn't matter if it's in deep rough down there and you're only about 120 from the green. Other old boys back here in the fairway whipping out a three-wood into a 15-mile-an-hour wind. So distance is huge right now. But I still believe your scoring clubs and the putter can neutralize even some of that. Well, and you mentioned something else about Justin earlier, the competitive aspect. I mean, don't, don't, don't go to sleep on that one. That was huge. He was such a great competitor, and that's probably what made him better in those other areas of the game too because he had to be better in those areas. You bet. And he, he, he earned a reputation uh, as a younger player. You know, he'll drive you crazy, guys. You're going to play with Justin. He's going to play in the fairway. And once he gets up around the green, it's going to beat you to death. I think you probably remember this name from the past. Remember Dean Pappas played oh, in Arkansas? Mm-hmm. Oh, love Dean. One of the nicest guys ever walked. And I watched him uh, when he was a graduating senior, or he might have been junior at Arkansas. I watched him play several rounds because guess who he's paired with? Justin. And here's Dean. And Dean could play. Now, he, I mean, he could play. And he's hitting these moonshot drives. I've never seen anybody hit the ball that far. And here's Justin. And I kept watching what Justin's reaction was in playing with Dean the first time. Then they played a ton of golf together against each other. Justin's hitting driver four iron. Dean's hitting driver wet. <laughs> not a fair fight. It's not. It's really not. But I tell you what, I think Justin being the type of person he was, he embraced it. And he played to his strong suits. And it really panned out pretty doggone well. Absolutely. You know, anyway, we could talk about Justin all day long because I think it's really amazing when a guy, the term overachieve is not the right term, but achieving near your potential as you can get. I mean, Justin, mm-hmm. Justin probably did that. Um, but on the, on the opposite end of the spectrum is somebody who's still playing professional golf right now, who's very young, who bombs it out there, Scotty Scheffler. And you've worked with Scotty since he was a young boy. Oh boy. It's, so talk to me about that because I remember when he was a skinny, scrawny little kid. I, I remember that when he was 12. I saw him at a junior golf tournament. He was 12. He grew. He got bigger and stronger. And he's a great, great tour player now. He's, uh, I, I really, I, it's hard to even explain that one. You know, um, he showed up on the range. He's six and a half, seven years old when they showed up. His parents had just had moved here from uh, from New York. And he'd been hitting balls with, with a, a gentleman there in New York when he was little bitty. And uh, that was one of the things he it was pretty obvious how much he loved it. And they came out and drug him, drug him out here to see me for some reason. And uh, he was up on the tee. I said, well, this is going to be great. Bomb, bomb, bomb. Okay, I'll go meet him. And hello, how you doing? I, I didn't leave for about two hours. <laughs> and all I did was watch him hit the ball right to left, left to right, high, low, whatever and I, I'm not asking him to do it. He would hit three shots and get bored with the same three shots, and all of a sudden you're, you're seeing a different shot. And he's like six and a half, seven years old directionally and all this kind of stuff. And I said, hmm, 
this is pretty good because it looks like this kid gets it. And it didn't take, I knew then it was going to be pretty good. He could be very good, but I can promise you inside the first six months that they were at the club, watching him and how he went about his business, there is no limit to the top of this, none. And then the growth spurt hit him uh, as he was going to last year of high school. And honestly, the growth spurt really affected him. He grew so fast that it was painful. It hurt. Things weren't in the right spot in his body. You know how it is when somebody those those kids start growing. Sometimes they have they're in so much pain, and sometimes they have structural issues. And Scotty had that, so that I think it affected his college career. It could have been much better than what it was. Yeah, Scotty. We all looked at him. I, I've been at Baylor. I was at Baylor for most of his career, but. Just you think that uh, you knew this guy was going to be a player. You could tell. and But he's also different than Justin in the sense that he's competitive like Justin, but he does hit it out there quite a ways further and mm-hmm. has some things, gifts, if you will, that maybe Justin didn't have. Uh, and he's still so early in his career. Who knows what, what Scotty might accomplish? Well, you bring up a good point there. You know, Justin played to the limit of what he could do most all the time. Uh, Scotty, you know, if you look at his driving distances, sometimes you look at them for average, <clears throat> they're not overwhelming, but then it's, he's got three different gears. Yep. He's got one shot. He hits. It looks like something out of this little bit out of the first flight at the men's club championship. You know, <laughs> he hits this little heel peeler down the left side. Doesn't get very high, but it will find fairways very easily. He hits that a lot when necessary. When a lot of people are hitting three woods off the tees, Scotty will take his driver and hit that particular shot. But the beauty of it is, is that all of a sudden you switch the gear, a little bit of a par five, not a big risk here, got to carry here. And all of a sudden his swing speed goes up about six to seven miles an hour. Mm. And the ball is hammered, absolute hammered. And then there's the gear in the middle that he plays most of his golf with. So he, he has three different gears. You know, that's something a strong player can do. If you're not going to hit it very far in the first place, why would you even, you don't need three gears. Yeah. You need to find yeah. a way to make top gear a little better. Yes, you do. Uh, it, it's a lot of fun watching. Plus I think his maturation is a, a player and being able to get from point A to point B with not having your best stuff is a lot of fun to watch because that competitive side keeps driving it. He's not going to get in too big a trouble, even when he's playing back. I agree with that. I also think one thing I haven't mentioned is I think he's one of the nicest guys on tour. He's just a heck of a nice guy. Um, Great kid. Yeah, he really is. You know that better than I do, but I, I think Scotty's, when he starts winning a lot someday, I think he's going to be one of the most popular guys on tour just because he's a great guy. Well, I think we saw that at, uh, where was it, Liberty National, when he that uh, lost ball, he found the ball, and he says, I don't think it was inside three minutes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and he's there was right. no, hesi- no hesitation in that. None. He's got, he's got the right stuff. We both know that. Yeah. So, um, Randy, I mean, that's obviously a thrill to work with great players and watch them develop and watch their careers take off, but, but, 
the golf teaching industry has changed a lot since you first started teaching 40 years ago or so. So I'm going to ask you, what do you think the, the biggest changes or developments have been in teaching? Because you obviously, it, it's even changed when you first started working with Justin Leonard. I mean, things have changed a lot. So what, what oh, yeah. are the biggest changes? Obviously, your technology. Uh, as you saw with me trying to hook this thing up and be around this machine here before, the my technology skills are really limited. Well, Randy, so, I thought I thought maybe after you finish as a director of instruction at Royal Oaks, you could be the director of Zoomology. You could run all the Zooms for them at the club. Yeah, I'm just going to say, get this expert in here, get this expert in here, bring this expert in, and I'll coordinate all the experts who get it up and going. Okay, all right, fair enough. Yeah, and that's kind of that's kind of the way I am a little bit with technology. You know, Chuck Cook, who's a not only a friend of mine, I mean, I like Chuck, he's a phenomenal instructor. <laughs> Chuck, you know, he gave me the nickname a long time ago, Trackman Randy. <laughs> and uh, he gives me so much grief about, you know, Hey, are you up to this? He asked me the other day, are you up to this video stuff we got going now? I said, yeah, I've got it on my phone. Kind of, how about that? Mm -hmm. And just, you know, because I, I shied away from it so much, but I think in the technology, I, I promise you TrackMan has got a definite benefit. Uh, FlightScope, TrackMan, whatever your cup of tea is. Uh, but the biggest thing in there is, is if somebody will use it in a proper fashion, it can be very helpful. Dustin Johnson used it in the proper fashion and became very proficient with the wedge game that's made him the number one player in the world. Okay. That was because Trackman, he could look down and had a feel for a normalized number of what that distance was. How far did my wedge fly? And that is the biggest key that it gave a lot of people. Plus, they can kind of look at how the spin of the golf ball is. You know, we hit wedges, we overspin the ball. Uh, and I'm not going to go into the when it happened, but I remember a tournament at uh, here in Dallas. I was walking around with you when a player I was watching stabbed one in the ground and just tomahawked it up there, and the ball did what? It hit the green, flew up in the air, it spun back off the gun. It was horrible, and I was just going nuts. Why do you do that? You can't do that. You've got to control the spin. I'm thinking that in my head, you know? But I tell you what, you do that on track, man, you see you've stabbed one, the spin numbers are up, all of a sudden, da, 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 you get a feel for creating the proper number, the proper distance with the proper spin. So I think from that standpoint, technology has been very, very, very helpful uh, in refining areas of the golf swing. I do think that some players are totally dependent on those numbers. I sit there and I have a kid come, I haven't seen, I'm going to see him, talk to him a little bit and the whole thing. He walks up and gives me a sheet of his track man numbers. <laughs> I know right then I'm probably not the right fit. This isn't going to work out quite so good. I'm going to, you know, I just don't like seeing that because you can't play golf by numbers. You play golf with your eyes, your hands, your heart and feel. Well, I'm glad you said that because I always tell guys, you they asked me, would Ben Hogan have used Trackman? Absolutely. He was a human Trackman. He would have used Trackman to validate everything he was working on. You but bet. he wouldn't depend upon Trackman, correct? No. Uh -uh. Because sometimes Trackman, 
as good as it is, if you get into the numbers a little bit, it'll fib to you just a little bit. You know, how do you hit a ball that went dead diametrically straight at a beautiful height, dead center out of the middle of a golf club? And you look down at your track man numbers, and the track man says at that point that you were four left, face was square to the path, but yet the ball went dead to target and you're lined up and you got all your things right. Sometimes, I don't know if it's the interaction with the ground, whatever, you get a little bit of a false reading and you have to use used it enough to go, uh-uh, that's a little bit of fake news. Ah, that's more what we get. Trackman's very good at giving you numbers. Sometimes it's not proper. Great example of this, guys. <clears throat> Somebody didn't, didn't know how to really use Trackman. I had a LPGA player. She's back home in France. She calls me in a panic. I don't know what's going on. Oh my gosh, I'm getting fitted for a new driver here in Paris. And I'm on track, man. And my spin numbers have gone crazy. I don't know what spin numbers mean, but they said my spin numbers are extremely high. Well, I just seen her about three weeks before over here. And she hits up on the ball at about five. She kills it. She couldn't spin it if she tried. She got an eight-degree driver, and she hammers it. And the ball goes out and just keeps on going. She's over getting fitted for a new driver, and the guy's telling her she's spinning the ball 39 to 4,200. And I said, did that just keep happening? No, every once in a while it would go down to a number I understood, but he said this was ridiculous. He said that half your shots are spinning upwards of 4,000. I said, does he not understand double spin? <laughs> it's a little thing a track man does. And evidently they had a problem with the machine that was showing double spin, but yet a person that's playing for a living is depending on this and getting completely freaked out over the numbers that they're getting, which were not read properly by the person that was operating the equipment. So, you know, sometimes it can be a little harmful, too. Well, I think we both agree that it can be a great tool if used properly without question. And there's a lot of technology used correctly is good. But you I'm going to ask you another question. What's one piece of technology you would never surrender? And it could be it could be simple technology, whatever. And what's one piece of technology you think is way overused? So you, you go where I'm going on that? One piece of technology that's way overused is misapplication of TrackMan numbers. Okay. Or flat scope numbers. Misapplication. Okay. I can't believe my path is so far over there when a day it was over here. When they get too wrapped up in making the path, you could make a mistake. Okay. You could make a mistake. All right. Uh, the one tool that I probably would never give up is my mind being mm. open. Oh, wow. I love that. That's really good. Yeah, I think closed mind is no way to go about this, is it? Well, it's you cannot, I don't think, and I've been around some really great instructors, and I, I, I know a bunch of them. I have great respect. I have great respect for so many of the young guys that are up there uh, that are so good. It's unbelievable. And I enjoy watching them teach. And especially the ones that have a little more feel for what they're trying to create. Uh, but the funny thing about it is, if, when teaching golf, it's kind of like you're kind of like a plumber, a little bit. You know, you're trying to 
you're trying to find out how to make something better and how to put somebody on the right path. If a plumber has one crescent wrench and one way to fix one problem, you better be bringing the specific problem for that crescent wrench in. Because if you bring another problem in, all he's got to do, all he's got is a crescent wrench, he might not be able to fix it with one method. But if you've got a toolbox that's got all kinds of tools, then you can come in with a problem and let me go in my toolbox here. Okay, let's approach this from this angle. And everybody says, well, you just make them do that same thing over and over and over and over. I've heard that so many times. I said, no, don't, because if it doesn't bite, if it's like fishing, if that lure doesn't catch something in five, six fish, I'm changing baits. And yep. I'm going to change baits until a fish bite. And that's what the student is. I'm going to change the approach until boom. Uh-oh, here we are. And that's the way we can get them to do it because everybody feels things totally different. So you'd like to have a toolbox that's pretty versatile to handle a lot of different problems. Absolutely. Well, I have a question where you mentioned other instructors you enjoy watching. Tell me two things. I'm going to ask two questions. One, who's been the biggest influence on your teaching style or the way you teach or how you teach? And what's the best piece of advice you've ever received in instruction? Biggest Good influence God. on you first. Do I now? Biggest influence on your teaching, if you had one. Oh, gosh. There's some guys that nobody would know back when I was young. That's okay. Uh, you know, that kind of influenced me early on. But i tell you some people that re I'll just give you a list of, of people that really got my motor going early on. Uh, Harvey Pinnock would be one of them. Mm-hmm. I went down working with Mr. Pinnock uh, without this would be a 20 minute story, but I worked with him and he told me two or three things that were almost magical as he would drive away and pick range balls and come back and check and see if I was still doing it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and uh, he had a, such a simple way of getting across and he, he used it. He, he kind of, everything was about this activity that I'd already done, you know, you know, you've heard the stories about the sickle and the grass and all those things. But if you have an image of uh, throwing a discus, if you have an image of a topspin forehand tennis, a kill shot and ping pong, things like that, you already have an image, you can do it. Mr. Pinnock was really good at using the image to create, the, you know, the fix. Phenomenal. Um, Lee Trevino spent so many years on a bucket watching him hit balls. I mean, really about four to five years when I first came to Dallas, cause he, he was something and he would be here at the club and I'd watch him hit balls and listen to what he talked about. And it gave me a really good idea of the relationship that the face has with the golf ball. Phenomenal, unbelievable knowledge that was, I mean, it helped me a great deal. Uh, people like Jim Flick, Jim Flick, the way he interacted with people, because I was fortunate enough to kind of be around him on a couple of teaching occasions. And the way he could communicate with people and the way he made them feel comfortable, but yet he'd drive them. He'd drive them hard. Not as hard as Bob Toski did, but <laughs> <laughs> that's some older fellas. But Mr. Flick, and then the, the thing about the arms and the hands, 
arms working, the hands working, and things working together. Uh, back then, then everybody got rotational and hands quiet, including me. It's still there in a lot of cases, but it's just another tool. I'm, it's amazing. I'm going back to more feeling the arms and the hands and the creation because that's the best way you can feel the club face. So those three right there, uh, Butch, been around him a pretty good amount. It, it, great guy and wealth of knowledge. Uh, you know, I go through a list. Chuck Cook, uh, phenomenal. Uh, got friends up in Tennessee, Rob Aikens, Nuttier and the Fruitcake. But the passion he brings to teachings, unbelievable. Uh, the young guys that are out there, you know, like Mark Blackburn, he, he's, he's really good. He's a really good instructor. And so it's, it's a lot of fun to watch all that stuff. And it's it, the more you're around them, if you ever close your mind off, you know, you can't close your mind off. Some of these young guys got some great stuff. But I'll tell you what, some of these old guys, they still got some great stuff. So, you know, I, that might be a kind of a long-winded answer to your question. No, I, I love that answer. And two things came to mind when you said that. One, Lee Trevino's still alive, and he's still in the Dallas area. If I was a junior golfer, I would find a way to get in front of that man and just listen to him talk. It, it's phenomenal at it's what a- God gave him. I, I have this old saying, you know, some people have been given a lot. Others do a lot with what they've been given. And yeah. Arnold, or Lee Trevino wasn't given very much uh, mm-hmm. as far as physical talent. He developed his talent. It's amazing. I could listen to that guy all day. And then, two, I've listened to kids I've recruited that take golf lessons from you, and that's one of the reasons I respect you because I, I hear how they talk about you, one, and they say you push them hard, too. You're a mean old man, but that's okay. But they do say they do say and they understand what they're trying to do with the golf ball and what they're trying to accomplish. And you've given them that. And that's important to me that if I'm going to recruit a kid that I know he understands what the instructor has tried to impart upon him. And then he can do it. And and uh, he understands where he's going with it. Well, I appreciate that, Coach. It's, it's, it's a lot of fun. Oh, man, absolutely. Well, OK, so that's good uh, as far as the influences on your teaching. Um, when you get a new tour player, where do you start? I mean, somebody comes to you, they're a guy that's heard about your instruction. They'd love to, where do you start? I mean, is that something you do the same with every player or is that individual? It's real easy. I mean, if, if I was going to, you know, say a tour player, somebody playing for a living, uh, I would, first of all, and and I want to know, why are you here? What is the problem that brought you here? And a tour pro is going to be the last person that says, I want to be more consistent. But where do you get consistency? CVS? And do you buy by the pound? Do you buy it by the gallon? <laughs> I mean, that's like, woo, that's a, what? What's wrong? What's the problem? Every time I get in a tight situation, my ball tends to go low left. Low left, I get it. I've hit it low left three times in a round. Ah, okay. Aha, we got a starting point. Okay, you said left and low. It's okay if it's low and it's left and cutting back to the fairway. But if you got low left, then the next question is, well, would that be followed by a high right that's weak? Yeah, how'd you know that? Yeah, I've kind of done that a little bit too. Well, it comes from the same spot in many cases. 
So then you have a spot to start. Okay. Then the main thing you want them to see is the difference in the ball flight. If you can get a difference in the ball flight and they play for a living, it doesn't take much after that. They can, aha, I see that. I feel that I sense that. And it becomes pretty quick to change something. You know, I think too many times we take great players and try to change something that we see in their swing and change it to the point where it, it really looks better. Gosh, that looks great. Well, it may look great, but they haven't really played anywhere near what they played before when they had this perceived flaw in their swing. You know, I, I think Ryan Palmer is a classic example of that. I mean, grew up in West Texas, Amarillo, Texas, shut face, good Lord, shut, 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 shut. Comes in a little bit from behind it, a little low, turns the right hand over it. Everything's a low trap hook, right? And yet he's playing on the tour, okay? He's just going out there. He's been playing for a year. I'll never forget it when I first saw him. Now, first thing I asked him, and it made me really, I stick with that. I said, in your swing, Ryan, uh, what's sacred? What is sacred to you? What do you mean sacred? I said, something you really don't want to mess with. Something that you know's there, but you know that's part of it. And he kind of said, well, you know, everybody tells me I'm a little, I'm shut, and that's why I hook it. Well, you could be shut, and that's the reason you've got that block right in there, big boy. Because a door can shut, but he sure wants to open in its next phase. Yeah, exactly. And if you don't time the thing up in the hands all of a sudden, not only you're a hook player, a low hook player, you're a wide right player too. And it took about, oh, two years without ever addressing the shut phase for the shut face to probably go to about half of what it was and half works beautifully, but there was a way to get the shut face out without him going up there and doing all these rehearsals to open the face at the top with hands, wrists that have nothing to do really with playing the game because he's still got to play. And so I got him to hit cuts as much as he could hit a cut until the cut started left of the target. And then all of a sudden, you start leading with the heel coming down instead of leading with the toe from a low position. And it opened up a whole bunch of golf courses that he could play much more efficiently because the low draw didn't work at Hilton Head. Hmm. And low draw doesn't work at a lot of these golf courses because you just don't have the room to start it. And once you could get a little better start line, a little better height on it, and the ball flight wasn't as radical right to left, it opened up a whole new world of golf courses to play and play efficiently. He's played a lot of very good golf for a very long time. He's a great player. So that's a good example of how you can take what a player's got and not, and he can still play while he's making changes. That's pretty important. to know They have too. to, because you, if you're going to do a tear down the rebuild, what's that going to do to the psyche of somebody playing for a living? Now there's certain things that have to be done. You bet but you want to at least leave them in some sort of position to go play the game and while they're trying to make the change. And change is hard, especially for somebody that plays at that level. Absolutely. So um, I'm going to have two more questions for you before we, we – uh, first of all, I want to say again thank you for coming on today, but I've got two more questions and then we'll, we'll uh, let you get back to teaching. Um, one, how long would you like to teach? 
I mean, I think you're probably somewhere in your 60s right now. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm kind of, yeah, I'm kind of in there. I'm in my 60s, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, how long do you think you'd like to do this? If As long as you love it? Is that how long you're going to do it? Yeah, as, as long as it's fun. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to get to the, the situation where you've got a list of people you're going to have lessons with or work with that day. I want to be able to look forward to seeing all of those people. I want to look forward to it. And I think it would be a point where I don't look forward to seeing him or her or what, then I know it might be time probably to go fishing a little bit more. But right now I don't have that. Good for you. I think enthusiasm is one of the greatest tools anybody can have in any profession. So if you still love doing it, you're going to be pretty good at it. So now the final question, what is your best piece of advice for any aspiring young male or female golfer who wants to play in college and then beyond that and wants to play for you? If you had one piece of advice, you have a couple, that's okay, but really important advice that you think they should all hear. Your AJGA ranking points, where you're ranked, have a bearing on where you can go play golf. I absolutely. But I think coaches today understand those ranking points might not be as big as their ability to be a good kid, a person that people want to be around, a kid that has integrity, a kid with a fiery passion to succeed, and a a way to shake hands with people that they're around. Wow. That's really good, Randy. Thank you. I love that. I I wish more, oh, either instructors or coaches or anybody would be giving, adults would be giving kids that advice. I mean, that's really, really important because those skills will take you a long, long way in this world. Well, I'll tell you what, I've seen a lot of them that just think they're so good. Man, look at me. (laughs) And they don't have the other tools to go with it. You need the other tools. You want to be that person that the rest of the team looks at and says, you know what? He's such a nice guy. He, he's, he's fun to be around. You don't have to fake it, you know, but have a certain decorum about yourself. Don't be the one that nobody wants to mess with. Mm. Nobody mm. wants to be around. Don't be that person. I'm with you. I'm trying, to recruit that. That. I'm trying to recruit that same kid. How about that? You got it. Well, Randy, thank you so much for joining us today on Better Than I Found It. You've been a great guest, and you gave a lot of really good insight. I appreciate it. Look forward to seeing you the next time I'm up in Dallas. You got it, bud. Anytime. All right, Randy. Thanks. Mikhail, take care, bud. Y'all be good.